I'm in the ESV. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt down before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And, the, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, so now he's, he was out of town, now he's coming to the town, his home base, a centurion, a non-Jewish Roman officer came forward to him and appealed to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I'm, I'm, this is the real deal. I'm telling you, no one, I have seen no one in Israel who has this kind of faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to the centurion, Go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the centurion's servant was healed at that moment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you by your Holy Spirit to move us this morning, to teach us, to kindly lead us into repentance. As this morning we look at you, all you have done and all you're doing. Help us to hear your word and do it. In your name, Lord. Amen. Hang on a second here. Okay. Like all the gospel writers, Matthew is interested in the question, who is Jesus? And Matthew's repeated answer, as we've been seeing through the series, is that he's the returning king. God the creator has arrived in the flesh. Jesus Christ is our very good king, and we are his fortunate subjects. At the end of chapter 7, right after the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount and the story of the two builders, Matthew observed this. When Jesus finished all of the sayings of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one with authority and not as their scribes. Well, throughout chapters 8 and 9, Matthew is exhorting his readers to be astonished not just at his teaching as king or his authority as king, but how that authority is reflected in what he does. To help us understand that the deeds don't just speak of his authority, but what it means to live by what he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. He's an example to us. When we read in chapters 8 and 9, we see 10 significant miracles. There are 10 throughout those two chapters. Uh, They're works of power over Skin disease, the story that we're reading today. Uh, twice, people who were paralyzed, that was one of our stories today, over fever, two times and specifically, and, and uh, many others by reference, over demons, casting out demons. He had power over the winds and the seas, over the forces of nature. 
in over a woman with constant bleeding, a person who was blind, and a person even who had died and was raised to life. Tremendous acts of power to demonstrate that he had the authority to say what he was saying. These first two healings in this morning's text are scandalous examples of love. They're scandalous because in each case, the recipient of the Lord's grace and his compassionate power was an individual that most Jews, most pious Jews, would have considered either unworthy or not worth the effort. A leper, a social outcast from Jewish society, and a Roman military officer, a representative of the occupying, oppressing power, to all Jews, a natural object of hatred. These two first, first two stories about the leper and the centurion are not just then about the Lord's compassion, although they are absolutely wonderful illustrations of that. They're also about him modeling how to live out the commands on the Sermon on the Mount. They're about delivering the leper and the centurion from otherness, metaphorically inviting them to the table. It's probable that the leper was a Jew. He was definitely an outcast. He suffered at least as much from social ostracization as he did from his skin ailment. He was a person, again, that good Jews would have avoided to comply with rabbinical law. They certainly would never have touched such a person. Although it's, it's, it's a shadow of what this man experienced, many, if not most of us, can relate to this on some level in our own lives, especially when we're growing up. Anyone, whether you've experienced it or you were the cause or simply observed it in another, anybody who's ever been a student at a middle school understands that being socially cut off is profoundly painful. Many of you went through that. Uh, I, I did, in, to some degree. Nothing like what this leper is experiencing, but we understand what it feels like, and some of us, unfortunately, understand what it feels like to cause it in other people. Most of us outgrow that. By the time we get out of middle school, we move on, and we grow up, and everybody else grows up. But for this leper, this was just a state of being. The Roman military officer, on the other hand, was not a Jew, and he wasn't a garden-variety Gentile either. He was a symbol of the occupying Roman Empire and the most present reminder of their power over the daily lives of the Jews. Romans were the oppressor. They were the persecutor of God's people. Even for the majority of Jews who were not going to pick up arms and rebel, Romans were the enemy of Israel, just as Babylon had been in centuries past. And a centurion was the highest-ranking Roman officer that most Israelites would ever come in contact with. They were present. Further people further up the chain were not around as much in their daily lives. To different degrees, from one person to the next, they felt fear, anger, even hatred for Romans, and Roman centurions in particular. They just were not people that they wanted to have, which they'd just go away. Well, Jesus' kindly treatment of this centurion was therefore scandalous to pious Jews. It was outrageous. It powerfully demonstrated that Jesus meant business when he said, love your enemy in the Sermon on the Mount. It's hard to imagine the Lord choosing a better example in the midst of these people of a person that most of his followers would say, yeah, that's an enemy. And he chooses him and is kind to him. Now, this centurion had real authority 
but he recognized it came from a higher authority. He had authorities above him that he must obey. He had authorities above him who gave him authority to act in their behalf. And he had many men under them, probably 80, 85 men under him that must obey him. He understood authority. And he instinctively understood that Jesus had a kind of authority that nobody else had. And the inference is that he assumed that Jesus got that authority from somebody above him, namely God. Well, as we read, Jesus' response was ecstatic. It was emphatic. Right in the middle of Matthew's story about this centurion, the Lord marvels at the faith of this Gentile of Gentiles. The only other time that this term is used in the whole New Testament is in Mark when he uses it to describe Jesus marveling at the unbelief of the people of Nazareth. He is just stunned. Jesus said he hasn't found such faith anywhere in Israel. He doesn't say this, but the inference is not even among the 12. What kind of faith did Jesus see in this Gentile military officer? A faith in Jesus that understands who he is, what kind of authority he has, and trusts in his authority. The Lord is saying, this guy gets me. He knows. He understands. This Gentile understands that I have authority from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a way that my own people do not get. He gets it. And by that faith, the centurion humbly brought his very great need to the one person that he perceived could meet it. The centurion's reaction to the Lord's statement that he will come to his house and heal a servant is also one of great humility. Because the centurion understood who Jesus is, or at least understood the kind of authority that he had from God, the centurion did not consider himself worthy to have him come into his house. It's likely that he also knew that a pious Jew had no business coming into a Gentile's house. But what what does it say to you and to me about how we casually regard our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and our association with him? Do Do we get him? Do we get ourselves? Do we forget that he is our Lord and Master and that it's by his great condescension that he also calls us friends, even siblings? Do we regard him as our Master, our Lord, as well as our Savior and friend? Do we understand that it's only by his grace, and his grace is huge, and it is enough, but it's only by his grace that we're worthy to have him come in to our homes and to be in his, to spend time in his presence. Jesus' intimate care for the leper, even touching him, was shocking. His attention to the centurion's needs and his extolling of his faith as above the Israelites was scandalous. And both were a direct rebuke to everyone who was listening, who marveled at Jesus' teaching, but wasn't wise enough to do it. Then it got worse for the pious listeners. Just as the Lord did at the end of chapter 7, right before the parable of the two builders, he calls into question the birthright of the Jews to enter or inherit the kingdom. The Jews believed they were worthy of life in the kingdom of heaven just because they were Jews, Abraham's descendants. 
In chapter 7, he said, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom. And here he says again that not every son of the kingdom will recline at the banquet table in the kingdom of heaven. In the context of this story, that's a direct reference to the Jewish people who by genetic succession saw themselves as sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, inheritors of the kingdom. But the Lord says, no. Many will come from east and west to join in the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which, by the way, is a direct reference to Gentiles, all non-Jewish people, including the Romans and the Babylonians. The Romans were to the west Babylonians to the east. It's also an echo of the opening words of the Gospel of John, which says this, Jesus came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And it's also a precursor to Paul's words in Romans 9, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it by faith, but Israel who pursued that law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law because they did not pursue it by faith. So Jesus extols the faith of this centurion and rebukes the faithlessness of Israel, and he warns all of his hearers of the terrible future that awaits those apart from faith in him. And then he turns to the centurion and says, Go, it will be done for you as you have believed. And it was so. Let's read the last little bit of our text, picking up in verse 14, just um, three or four verses. Again, Jesus is still in Capernaum. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, a crowd of people brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So in Matthew's telling, the healing of the leper and the centurion's servant are followed up almost immediately by Matthew telling us story concerning lots of miracles in the town of Capernaum one day. He cast out demons and he healed all who came. We know from other stories in the Gospels that Jesus did not heal every person who had problems that he came in contact with. Uh, the easiest place to see a reference for that is John 5. When he goes to the pool of Bethesda and heals a man there, there are dozens, perhaps hundreds of people around this pool, and he heals one. But this day, Matthew tells us that on that evening, he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Everybody, everybody who came to Peter's house that evening with something that needed attention was healed. Then Matthew points out that Jesus did not, he did that to fulfill his role as the suffering servant that Isaiah predicts in Isaiah 53. So Matthew, we read, 
quoted Isaiah. He quoted Isaiah, what we call Isaiah 53, 4. But his hearers, the listeners, would have tuned in to, they knew the passage. They knew the context. Here's part of that passage from the message. The servant grew up before God. He was looked down and passed over a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. But the fact is, it was our pains that he carried, our disfigurement, all the things wrong with us. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. And God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him. On him. By his reference to Isaiah 53, Matthew is telling his readers that what Jesus was doing that day in Capernaum is a picture of what he accomplished on the cross for all time in the heavens and on the earth. He took our rebellion, our infirmities, our sin. He healed our sicknesses by taking them into himself as he died for us on the cross. In the here and now, there's no doubt that we still suffer. We know from firsthand experience that Jesus does not heal every sick person. We have all lost people that we love to sickness. We have watched people who don't die, who live with terrible infirmities. But our future hope is secure in who he is. We know that there is a day coming when that will not be here. Well, what do we do with all of this? <clears throat> I've said this before. For me, reading through Matthew is it's a challenge. I haven't spent a lot of time in Matthew in my life as a believer. I mean, I've, I've read it multiple times, but in terms of like just really digging into it, I'm much more fond of the Gospel of John and other places. You know, Matthew is, is this, the Lord showing up and saying, I'm the king and the emperor, of course, is that means he's the king of me. <laughs> so what do we do with all this? The first thing to do is remember that following Jesus is all grace. Even, even our little efforts to follow him are grace. It's a wonderful truth that the God who made us knows how limited and finite we are. This is from Psalm 103. This is David. This is, uh, I'm jumping around, so it's not everything. As a father has compassion on his kids, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we're made of. He remembers that we're just dust. So it, uh, my first thought in terms of what to do all this is to trust his compassion, his grace, his mercy. The blood of Jesus has washed us clean. We are not lepers anymore. We are clean The second thing would be to ask the Holy Spirit for ears to hear and eyes to see who he is. To understand that he is the king, not just of heaven and earth, but of me, of you. He's not just a king somewhere sitting off in a throne room ruling the cosmos, and I'm a free agent. He's my king. Do you hear him calling you to forsake the world? to repent of following the crowd or your own priorities, to follow him in the life 
that he is inviting you to live as a social outcast for him? Is he big enough to be enough for you? Is he your king? Ask the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to keep changing your heart and your mind and to keep conforming your very will to Christ. Third, then look around. Who are the lepers in your life? In the life that you live? Embrace the social outcasts among you. This isn't just a command of moral living. It's not like how to be good. We don't definitely we, we definitely don't earn our way into the kingdom or a seat at the table of the Lord by doing a certain thing. But we ourselves are among the outcasts that the Lord has invited to the table and embraced. It's our honor, it's our birthright to join the Lord, our King, as he embraces the outcast. It's our great reward and honor to dine at the table with the Lord and our fellow redeemed outcasts. So be mindful. I have to be mindful of the folks in my life who are outcasts that I just don't want to deal with, who the Lord might be calling me to embrace. And lastly, who are the enemies in your life? Do you love your enemy? Again, this is a self-reflective question. It's the kind of question that self-reflective people who are determined to be live lives that are set apart to God ask, who are the enemies in my life and do I love them? Now, it's easy for us, I'll say it's easy for me, have this sound just like a philosophical idea. <clears throat> we don't live under an occupied, an occupying power. We have a tremendous amount of personal freedom in this country. We're not fighting an invading force like the people, many of our brothers and sisters right now, in Ukraine. We don't have soldiers who commandeer our cars, our houses, our phones, who force us in the biblical term to walk the extra mile and carry their stuff. But we have other kinds of enemies. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last 10 years, you are well aware that there's a whole lot of division right now in America and in Maine, among Americans and Mainers. It's easy to spot the camps, the tribes, the devotion to religious and political position in others. Do I see those things? Do we see each those things in ourselves? Are we recognizing them? The sectarianism that makes it so easy to brand somebody else as the other. Are we drawn into that cultural division or do we resist it? Are we part of the problem or part of the solution of bringing the grace of Jesus into the picture? If we're honest, many of us get sucked into that cultural paradigm to one degree or another. Or we passively go along with it because we don't want to rock the boat with the people we're hanging with. Well, repenting begins first with prayer. Oh, Lord, help me. We need the Lord's help. We need the Lord's help with this. We are naturally divisive. That's what human beings are. We all are. We need the Lord's help. We need his new mercies every day. And then it continues with being willing to be shunned for the sake of being different, for actually loving your enemies. Because if you love your enemies like the Lord loved the centurion, people are going to 
if they're, they're going to question you, but they also are probably going to like, hey, well, I, don't, I just don't know about that person. But you know what? Maybe you're not worked up about those people. Among the Lord's people, there's plenty of folks who know it's just wrong to despise the other. And so another approach to this is to um, simply ignore them <laughs> and avoid them uh, so I don't have to deal with the division in my own heart, the anger and animosity. But that, that isn't the Lord's way either. The Lord's way is embracing people who are outcasts, people who are enemies. The Lord invites us to join him in loving our enemies, to pray for them, to engage them, to learn to understand them for the cause of him and his kingdom, and to treat them well. And when we don't do that, and I understand we all don't do that. I don't do that all the time. But if our heart is not wanting to do that, we have lost sight of how scandalously wonderful it was when the Lord treated that Roman centurion with such great love. That's the same kind of love. It's the same kind of prodigal love, like just pouring out, splashing all over love for the unlovey that caused him to invite us, you and me, into his family by granting us the grace to receive and believe him. Praise to him. So in closing, may the Lord help us to be those who extend grace to the outcast and to our enemies. Let's pray. Lord, you know how impossible that is for us to do, and we thank you so much that it isn't about our doing that, that it isn't our doing that. It's not by our doing that we will find our way into the kingdom or find our way to a seat at the table. It's by what you've done. It's by the blood that you shed on the cross. But, Lord, we ask you, work in our hearts, conform our hearts, our minds, our wills to you, to your mind, Lord Jesus. Conform us to who you are so that we can embrace the outcast, so that we can love our enemies. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen. ELT will now come up and hand out the elements, and Doug will lead us in communion. As they begin to pass out uh, the communion cups, um, I encourage you to uh, think and meditate on peace as I read some verses. So to think about uh, the peace that was purchased for us uh, by the work that Christ did on the cross. Uh, and to know that we do this um, not just us, right? This is the church throughout the world is doing this. And we, together with them, have the hope in that peace. Uh, and then also in what this peace is pointing to, that Christ is going to come again and restore perfect peace. I encourage you also to work on wrestling this open while we do this. Uh, so you have to multitask. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring to bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and he broke it. And when he had given thanks, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and eat. 